And um, I'll let you get a start. You seem to be the uh, good one at that. So if you'd go ahead. <laughs> yes, sir. I, listen, the reason I say that, people, is I know I know us. I know us. I'm sitting here with nothing in front of me. Right? Not a thing, not a word written down on anything. Not in the no. I know what's on the table in front of him. <laughs> yes, sir. There's like there's lots here. Uh, there's a series of notes. Uh that's just uh that's always been our relationship. He's the note taker. I'm I'm off the cuff. So I'm gonna turn it over to him and let us let him get us started because if I start it might just mess up every note he's got written down on the table. <laughs> well, I, I tell you what we're going to do, and I'm glad that we're doing it, and I'm glad the audience is here, and I'm not sure if at some point, uh, on a serious note, this needs to become more regular because we can't ever exhaust anything that we jump into. Uh, and so we're not going to be able to exhaust temptation tonight, but it would certainly be a good study I actually started writing some material several years ago, and uh, there are, I mean, there's probably enough for a book at this point. It's just not organized well and so forth, but because I think it's such a needed topic. Personally, I've struggled with it my, in, in my life, and uh, I, I just think it's something we need to talk about more. We add, um, I think it dovetails, as you probably would uh, agree, that it dovetails into so many other topics uh, like the devil, uh, for instance, and personal responsibility and choice. And on the other side of that, the Holy Spirit, what he does, does not do um, these things. And so all of that stuff eventually touches this subject of temptation. And uh, I, I would add uh, salvation and sanctification and security in the Lord and walking in the light and all of these things that um, Christians struggle with from day to day probably find themselves connected to temptation and sin on some level at some point. If you um, are here tonight, this would be us, uh, one of us walking into the other one's office saying, hey, I was thinking, and then us sitting down and talking for a, a couple of hours. So that that's really what this is. And I thought we would begin. There are several texts that just scream about the subject. Um, and I don't know how many of them we'll get a chance to get to tonight. I'll toss a couple of them out and I'll let you kind of tell us what exactly we want to delve into first. Uh, do we want to do anything with the nature of man? Do we want to talk about that at all and our ability to be free, independent, moral, free moral agents, accountable, responsible? Uh, do we want to talk about James 1? Uh, 13 to 15 specifically. First uh, John 2, 15 to 17 comes to mind. Of course, our Lord's temptation and all of the implications of that. Matthew 4, it's recorded Luke 4, and I think in both counts, probably about the first 10 to 13 verses. So uh, where or is there anything you'd like to introduce to kind of frame what comes into your mind as you kind of hear the subject of uh, temptation, sin, so forth, uh, overcoming it, and, and so forth. I, I think the first thing you said, we, we need to address it. I don't know that we need to spend the entire night on it, but um, the, the until you get a, get a grasp of the nature of man, I don't think you're going to have a, a proper understanding of the nature of temptation. Uh, because, you know, um, every form or, or every 
form of Calvinism or any form of doctrine that teaches original sin or depravity of any kind changes the, the nature of man and so therefore changes his ability to avoid or the, the causes of his falling into temptation. So I think we need to at least pass through that ground for a little bit before we move on to the other stuff. So to start that ground, I would think that would take us to Genesis. <laughs> That's what I would think. Because Genesis 1 and 2 record the creation. Okay. Do they, do they know why that's so funny? <laughs> you told them uh, last time, I think. Uh, you told them something. But you just said that. You... Eric, every discussion you have on the Bible with Eric starts in the book of Genesis. <laughs> and he's not wrong, by the way. He's not wrong. <laughs> But every, every time he does it, I laugh because he does it every time. So anyway, let's go to the book of Genesis together, man. So in Genesis 1, 26, 27, that's the creation of man. And we learn um, that God made us in his image. And so, you know, whatever you do with our image, to, to, to some degree, we share the image of God. God shared himself with us. Um, Genesis 1, 26, 27, God created man in his own image and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Um, we, we know God is spirit, uh, John 4, 24. And Genesis 2, 7 tells us that man is unique among God's creation because at least this is the way I think of it. You can jump in here as soon as you like. I, I think of it in terms of there being four natures revealed to us in scripture. There is the divine nature with all of his attributes, all of those that we refer to as omni, omniscient, omnipotent, um, omnipresent, uh, eternal, uh, perfect and holy and absolutely good in all of his ways. That would be the divine nature. There are three beings revealed to us in scripture who possess that one nature. We refer to them as they are revealed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Of course, the word in eternity prior to taking on flesh. And then there is angelic nature by way of dissension. And angels are greater in power and might than man. They are spirit beings, Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. By way of descending further, uh, Psalm 8, we are made a little lower than the angels, is humanity. And then beneath us are the animals. Of these natures, the divine nature is spirit. The angels are spirit. The animals are flesh. Only human beings are spirit housed in flesh. We share things in common with the animals, though we're not animals. And we share things in common with the divine. That's human nature as best as I can understand it in scripture. Jay? I wholeheartedly agree with that. And... Um... The, 
I think the critical thing in terms of the discussion about temptation is that the spiritual side of man, I believe is what he's talking about here in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Uh, the image of God here, I don't believe is a physical, a physical form as in, you know, we're going to make him, with, you know, we have, two, we have two arms, two legs and 10, 10, fing you know, 10 fingers and toes. We're going to make him look like that. I believe he's making a spiritual statement about the quality of the spirit. It's, it's uh, all the things that you talk about with humanity, volition, free will, um, intellect, all, all of that that you would, would talk about, and, and, the, and capacity. Uh, be holy as I am holy. Love as I have loved you. That comparison that God makes back and forth all, all the time about I'm your standard, I am your ideal, you need to live up to me. And all of that says that you, you obviously then have the potential to do that. You have uh, now, obviously, the vagaries of flesh. You know, it, it, it lusts for what it lusts. It, it, it's, it grows weak. It grows tired. It grows old. All of those things impact our ability to maintain and sustain that uh, connection to the image of God or to, to, the, uh, to the character, to, to, the, to the ideal of God. But we have the potential within us based upon the commands that he gives us, which is be as I am. <laughs> so his evaluation of our nature is that the spiritual side of man has the capability, has the, has the capacity to be who he is. And that's what he calls us to do. I believe that's absolutely right. And I would um, add to the thought that those uh, desires are not innately wrong. That is the things that we desire in our bodies, i.e. companionship, it's not wrong. Uh, food, it's not wrong. Um, money, safety, security, all of these things, the existence of them are not wrong. It's just that in the exercise of them, we can go uh, contrary to the spirit that God would have us to use them in. And so you can lust for that which you should not have, but to eat is not wrong. Um, Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 are not eating to satiate themselves. If they were simply hungry, they had access to every tree in the garden. Uh, food is not at issue. Person who is in a physical body is going to get hungry. That's not a problem. Lusting is a problem for that which is forbidden. And we'll get into that further as we talk about temptation. But I think that's really uh, the meat of, of the discussion ultimately when we talk about temptation. Yeah, let me add one more thing, because I, I, like I said, I don't, I don't want to spend all night here, at least in my mind, because we need to establish this. But there's one, th one thing I want to add. I've talked about some in the Romans class I'm doing on Monday through Thursday morning, 9 a.m., by the way. Actually, the show starts at 8. I do it Romans at 9. Good class. You should come. Um, but one of the things I've been talking about in that class is that Christianity is not mystical. There is no mysticism in Christianity. And every doctrine of depravity whether that is a partial depravity, like so many inside churches of Christ teach. And, and you can hear them talk about it when they pray about the Holy Spirit, that they need the Holy Spirit to come in and add something to their ability to remain faithful, add something to some kind of direct spirit-to-spirit -spirit type contact, because of the human spirit is lacking. It doesn't, it has the capability. And that's where we get into that whole discussion about the fall. And I think you and I are pretty much on the same page that it's the fall is not technically a fall of a humanity. It's a fall of two individuals. It's essentially a legal transaction. You broke the law. Therefore, here are the consequences. Um, but most people come out of the garden thinking that somehow the nature of man was diminished. 
It was made in the image of God, and it is somehow now lesser than that. And scripture just simply does not teach that. And the moment you get into mysticism, and mysticism simply defined is that there is a truth that you need to attain to, some body of truth some that you need to ascertain outside of the use of the five senses, seeing, hearing, and so on, the five senses, some kind of extrasensory perception, that there then is going to be some direct influence of, of, of moral uh, uh, fortitude, moral insight infused into you beyond the, the, the experience of the five senses in which the, 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 in which, or by which our spirit perceives the world. That's mysticism. Christianity does not teach that, simply does not. Uh, and every degree or to whatever degree you, you lead into mystical thought and, and the height of mysticism in Christianity is Calvinism because Calvinism is 100% spirit to spirit led contact uh, or spirit to spirit contact led by the Holy Spirit to keep you from being dead spiritually. It's 100% on that side of the scale. But even 1% says that there's at least 1% of me that cannot obey God. And that's just not something the Bible teaches. So I would, that's why this discussion here on the front end is so important. The command to be holy as I am holy is in the Old Testament before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was ever given. And it's in the New Testament, same command. Whatever moral fortitude we have is the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. One with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, one without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Same moral fortitude. And that's, I think that's just critical to get in this discussion of temptation. I couldn't agree more. Uh, the fall, as we use that phrase, is one of those things that you grow up hearing and you just adopt. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we don't always practice what we preach, and that is read the Bible. I don't know that that ever occurs in the Bible that way. I don't know that it's ever said that way. And the way uh, Calvin and others have it is the fall happens to man after Adam and Eve sinned. What they never explain is how they sinned. Yeah. How did the two perfect people fall? Because they suggest that everybody after them is the result of that fall and therefore depraved. But that, that, that helps us in no way. And then what we do learn is Adam and Eve sinned just like everybody else sins. There is nothing distinct or different from the character and nature of Adam and Eve in the garden as it was to anybody being tempted to sin outside of the garden. It has always been the same and man's held responsible the same. Did I ever tell you about the Bible study I had with that guy out in Katy, uh, uh, who was a Calvinist? <laughs> you shared some of it with me. This is where it got... Because the, the, you brought up that, that you, what you brought up you said to me first, first time I ever heard it was you. And I, I sprung it on this guy. It, you know, he, he was a Calvinist and you can't do any good because you're hundred percent wrong. I said, okay, if that's true, if hundred percent wrong, can't do any good. What about the other side of the coin? How does hundred percent, or did I say that backwards? hundred percent evil can't do any good. Adam and Eve, they were perfect. He said, yeah. I said, so hundred percent good. He said, yeah. So I said, how does hundred percent good do bad if hundred percent bad can't do good? Th that dude sat there for 20. I sat in my chair crossed it out on desk from him for about 20, 25 minutes. It's and he was, was well-educated. And he would go, okay, well, this might be true and this might be true, but if I say that, then you'll just say that. And I said, yep. <laughs> and then he went down another line. Okay, but maybe it's this. But, but And then he would always jump to the end of the line. Oh, but you'll say that. And I said, yep. 
I mean, it was the most beautiful Bible study I've ever had because I didn't have to say a word. I was with an educated, but more importantly, a man with an honest heart. It took about oh, two years later. What's that? Did he give up his doctrine? It took about two years. Oh. He struggled. It took about two years, but he was it's actually after I left Katie, I found out he was baptized. Uh, he gave it wow. up and it is his dad was in the reformed church as their you know evangelist and pastor and all that stuff, whatever they, whatever they call him over there. But he dude, <laughs> it was wow. it was it was the best Bible study I've ever had in my life. Because yeah. sometimes you see you you see somebody getting that dilemma and you see them turn away from it. You see them lie to themselves or this guy was just as pure, honest as anybody I've ever studied with. It was awesome. Anyway, let's get back to the topic. That's fantastic. Well, since we're here, let's talk about the first sin, uh, Genesis 3. So I suppose we'll begin then having established hopefully what we have with regards to the nature of man. And if you'd like to read some passages on those things of which we talked, um, you could compare Genesis 3 with Joshua 7 and Achan's sin and 2 Samuel 11 with David's sin, and you could see we could swap out fruit and gold and shekels and, and, and uh, clothing or another human being as a person there in the person of Bathsheba, and you will come to the same uh, instances that we find here in Genesis 3, 6. Uh, the verse says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took them from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Um, how temptation comes to us. John says, 1 John 2, 15 to 17, all that's in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So, is it safe to say that through those three avenues, we will all be tempted in whatever way to do whatever it is we're going to be tempted? It will find itself in one of those areas. I would say so. Uh, and and to, not to go back there, but that's exactly what I'm talking about. Both to do good and now to do evil. The same thing's true. The devil didn't tempt Eve through any way other than what she's able to perceive through the senses that God gave her, the physical senses. He talked to her uh, and she looked and saw. There's nothing there that's outside the realm of your perception. And I that's a critical point to get in this whole study. There's nothing outside of your perception that is involved in the temptation process. And 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 what you said there with, with uh, 1 John 2, exactly right. You have... All of that coming in through those same manners, those three avenues of temptation. Of course, people have made the parallel between 1 John 2 and, and what here John or Genesis 3, 6 says. There's three ways that she interacted with the fruit, and they, they align very, very nicely with the three um, the three um, statements there in, in, in 1 John 2. I, <clears throat> it seems to me, so we have the three avenues, 1 John 2, and then we have this progressive nature that, as we'll look at it maybe a little later, more in harmony with James 1, that is that uh, when when we are drawn away, we are tempted. And then when Tim, when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. So you, you, you not only have these three avenues, but you also have this threefold progression, this progressive mm -hmm. nature of the process Maybe we should 
maybe just pause here long enough to say, at least acknowledge, and I get your thoughts on it, that to be tempted is not sinful. No. To, to be tempted is inevitable. Mm. It, it, it just is. That, that, that's what's inevitable, not, not the sin. Uh, your response to the sin, as I think, you know, Johnny just put a comment in there, said about what we we're talking about, Eve, he, she said she made a decision. That's absolutely right. When she saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, a tree desire, a tree desire to make one wise, she took. Now, there's the decision. The first part, um, first part's not wrong. Now, I guess you could argue um, that her response to Satan was not... Um, was not um, appropriate. Mm. You know, maybe she should have uh, cut him off at that moment and said, you know, when 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 uh, Satan contradicts the words of God, I guess you could make the argument that if she had defended the nature of God in that moment, that the temptation would have never gotten to it. But that kind of takes us to James chapter one about the progression of, of uh, every man's tempted, drawn away of his lust and lust when it's finished, bring forth sin and so on, or, you know, and then sin bring forth death. That that's the that's the progression in James one, and she didn't sort short circuit it at any point. But your your basic premise there is right. The temptation is not inherently sinful. Um, you know, you you have the, the human body has a desire for companionship for intimacy. Does that spur you on toward marriage, or does that spur you on toward fornication? Same desire, same temptation. You know, a young boy or a young man see, sees a young, a, a young woman and he says, yep, I like her. I would like to be with her. Now, how does he conduct himself from that point forward? Um, and, and ladies, I hate to tell you, when, when the man who became your husband walked up to talk to you for the first time ever, um, he wasn't he didn't walk up to talk to you because he thought, man, that is really one intelligent woman. <laughs> he may think and he does think you're an intelligent woman. But the first time, you know, if you were at college together or whatever, the first time he saw you across, across the quad, he walked over there because he thought you were good looking. That's, that's why he walked over there. That's, that's the way we work. Um, and so it just depends on what you do with that desire once it, once it, once it, once it is aroused. It's interesting that uh, as usually it is the case in the understanding of something, you already have the solutions to how to fix it. But so when we talk practically about, okay, how can I overcome temptation? Well, you know, this actual discussion on the back end of it is how you fix it. So what we're talking about in verse number six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, can you bring up Genesis 2, uh, 9? Because, uh, what Genesis 2.9 says is that out of the, Lord, the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. So when Eve saw this tree, that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye, just know <laughs> that wasn't a problem. Every tree in the garden was pleasing to the sight and good for food. When do we have a problem? If you go back to Genesis 3, 6, notice the next phrase, after she saw the tree, that it was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes. And note that it says, 
a tree that was desirable to make one wise. Now that is in harmony with Satan's uh, questioning, impugning God's character and God's motive for withholding the tree. And he told her, you will not die, but you'll be like God. You will be as God. You will know something you don't presently know. Well, now it is the desire, which usually when I'm talking about temptation, I tend to argue that the problem is we are trying to use something in a way that God has forbidden. God didn't intend this for that. In fact, he forbade the tree. But now Eve wants the fruit to be wise, not to satiate her hunger. And uh, therein lies our problem. And I think that's at the root of temptation and sin. Yeah. And, and there's, there's got to be something there. Um, maybe not a, a, a primary cause, but especially as it relates to a specific command of God, what Satan is able to do. And in the first Timothy two condemns Eve and that she was deceived. Um, you know, that, that phrase at the end of verse number six, um, you know, I don't know how much significance to put on that phrase about Adam that she gave to her husband with her. Now, does that mean that he just ate also, or was he actually standing there with her while Satan was doing this? In which case, then he went in with his eyes wide open. Mm-hmm. She fell prey. She felt she was deceived. The Bible says that clearly. And what she, the only thing she could be deceived about is that Satan was able to convince God um that um um something about the word of god was not true something that he said was not um not 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 right not just and that so therefore he impugned god's character and she fell for that now i have always thought it interesting uh, this is probably a little bit off the topic but that phrase right there in verse number three is not in genesis 2 no, it's not. And the only person I know that could add it would be Adam. Because if Genesis 2 is, is, is chronological, the command about the tree is given before Eve is brought to Adam. So Adam hears the command, and the only person I know of that could add, unless there's more that we're not told from the Revelation, the only person that could add to that would have been Adam. So if Adam is the one that told that command to Eve... Adam is the one that added the word don't touch it in there, which is what is which is a very common thing that we would do in terms of God. You know, don't 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 somebody says, you know, a parent says to an older child, you know, don't don't go out and play in the yard or something. And then the older brother says to the the younger brother, younger brother, they said, don't go in the yard. I don't even want you to look out the window. That kind of thing. (laughs) Uh, Always enforcing it even more. And I, I say all that, say this. The serpent said, you shall not surely die. She says, if I touch it, I'll die. In my mind, again, pure speculation on my part, right? But if she didn't hear it from God and she heard it from Adam, that when you touch it, you die. And she reads out and she takes the fruit. Nothing happened. I wonder if if that doesn't play a part in it. The, the, the doubts she had about God that she was deceived about 
I think at least possibly were inflamed by the misrepresentation of God that Adam gave her, or at least probably gave her. Does that make sense? It does. And I think we do that to each other when we're, when we talk about the Bible and we talk about the commands of God, again, maybe off topic a little bit, but I think we, we hurt, we can end up hurting each other by trying to protect people from, from the actual, from God, because then we, 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 we distort the very nature, the character of God in the eyes of the person hearing the command, which can lead to further temptation. Uh, I, I would agree with that. And I, I think that would be something that's done too frequently. Since we're here, slide down to verse 17 and listen to God talk to Adam on the backside. Uh, I think it must go uh, to some degree with that discussion. Verse 17, then he, he to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. I've always thought that equally interesting because I'm not sure if that means after she ate, she talked to him. Or by eating, she just gave it to him. Yeah. I imagine you can use the phrase, listen to her voice, hearkened to her voice, King James. I imagine you can use the phrase both ways, but it sounded very much like it's being put in opposition of uh, which, the, which I commanded you. You have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, uh, saying you shall not eat from it. So she said, maybe in line with what you just said, if she touched it, didn't die, she ate it, maybe she told Adam, no big deal. Turns out it's okay. I don't know. Uh, yeah. But he listened to her and not to God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, temptation then has a lot to do with desire. So um, we should probably... I said in a sermon recently, not everybody is tempted by the same things. So I think sometimes we try to group everybody in and uh, somehow mask my issues by simply saying, we all got them. Mm -hmm. Well, we may all have issues, but we don't all have the same issues. And, and so if we're going to overcome temptation, I think that would be a good discussion to have is, is my desire, what am I desiring it? Why am I desiring it? How am I using it? What am I expecting out of it? I think this is where you really begin to try to unravel and overcome the issue of temptation. Mm -hmm. yep. That will, go ahead. No, I, I, was, I was following your lead there. I thought you were about to go somewhere, but go ahead. I was gonna go to James chapter one with that thought in mind. Okay. Kind of thought that's where you're going, but yes, sir. Uh, these first 12 verses, I think, uh, for those who don't know, Michael Height taught the book of James, he did a fantastic job. Uh, you said last night you thought they were still available out there, but they won't always be. Yep. So, you may, right. avail, may avail yourself of that study. We're going to slide down to verse 13, where we move from outward trials to inward trials. And James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. 
Then when lust hath conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is accomplished, brings forth death. Would you like to begin an exposition of these thoughts? Okay. Um, well, starting in verse 13, let no, man say, let no one say uh, when he is tempted that I am being tempted of God. Um, and, you know, in some degree, I think I hear people say that. Um, I, 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 sometimes we don't use the word tempted because I think we're, we're better Bible students than that. Uh, but we do use the word trial or uh, trying to teach me something or something along those lines. Um, and here he says that that's not something that you need to be doing. Um, I, when, when let no man say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. First of all, um, that does simply say two things. One, there are going to be times when you're not tempted. Okay, let no man say when he is tempted. That suggests that there are times we are not going to be tempted where this, where you would be inclined to say that. Secondly, it also asserts that you are going to be tempted. There is going to be a time when that temptation comes upon you. Next, I am being tempted of God. The reason you should not say that is because it is a violation of the character of God on two, on two parts. One, he cannot be tempted by evil. And two, he himself does not tempt uh, anyone. All right, God cannot be tempted with evil. As we have been talking about with Adam and Eve and, and, and so on, the things that we would um, desire uh, to make wrong use of, as Eric talked about earlier, God has no, no need of that. Um, he has no, there is nothing lacking in God. It's on some level, the succumbing of tem to, to temptation is almost always selfish. It's almost always covetous. Uh, if I tell you the truth, I'll get hurt. I see the, the attractive individual. I will feel better if I get to be with that person. Uh, if I cut the corner at work, I get to make more money. Whatever the case is, it's almost always selfish. And there is that idea that God, then, of course, cannot be tempted with evil. He's never going to be, in that regard, self-serving. But then he is also one who does not seek to do that to others. Um, you know, sometimes there are people that you will come across in your life that will absolutely do that to you. Uh, you know, Eric's got a couple of people in his life that sometimes just try to trip him up over things. <laughs> Hopefully not to do evil. <laughs> well, maybe a little bit. <laughs> um, but again, often, oftentimes the same motivations in play. You see that person of a high integrity, high, high virtue. And, and you try to, to, to bring that person down to your level to make you feel better. Mm. Okay. God doesn't do any of those kind of things to people. He, he is not ever going to be capricious. He's never going to be arbitrary. That's a violation of his nature, violation of his character. I guess in order then, James says a very firm statement here. Let no one say when he is tempted, God had anything to do with it. Because it is, that statement is a, is a denial of the nature of the God that we serve. And that is, that is, first of all, at least borderline blasphemous, which is a problem. But secondly, and, and, if, and if I can say more importantly, maybe at least more important in a practical sense, Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For the one that comes to God must believe that he is, and that God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. James goes on in this same text about four or five verses later, to say that every good and good, every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Um, that the nature of God is to be a rewarder, 
not a tempter. If you, if you walk through life thinking, okay, God is doing this to me. You have just violated in your mind. You have just distorted rather the nature of the God that you're trying to please. And just as the pagans had their vicious and vindictive gods, if you turn the God we serve into that God, you'll never be able to sustain the right kind of relationship. And so therefore you won't be able to overcome temptation. So this is a critical part in understanding temptation. It is, it is very critical to make sure you maintain a proper understanding of the nature of God within your mind. Uh, very well said. Let me, let me um, ask this and then we can discuss it. It might take us off a little, but this idea then of uh, the di difference between temptation and a solicitation or invitation to sin versus Genesis 22, 1, uh, God did tempt Abraham, where you're talking about the trying of one's faith. Now, I don't know that I've ever said this out loud, and I certainly don't know if I've ever said it publicly, but let me just get your thoughts. Well, I'm not going to put you in that position either. I'm not sure. Let me say it that way. And by sure, by not sure, I mean, I'm trying to be nice. I'm not sure <laughs> that that there's any evidence that that happens to us today by God. That I could point to something in my life and say, God was trying my faith in this moment. Mm -hmm. Number one, I don't know how I could identify that. I mean, I got the event, but without revelation from God saying so, I don't know how I would know he's behind it. I know that he's behind Abraham's because I can read Genesis 22. I know in Exodus 16, he's behind Israel's because I can read Exodus, Exodus 16's with the manna. He's come to prove you. Um, what I don't know is how I could prove that any event in my life is the result of God testing my faith by action A. And so uh, that wasn't your point, but your point was when we say God is doing it, we might use the word trial, but how we could prove that it would be beyond, beyond my abilities to know. Yeah, um, I, I pulled, up, pulled up Genesis 22 because I, I wanna, because you're right, Genesis 22, one opens and it may, may vary from, uh, Translation to translation, uh, uh, I pulled up the NASB because I think that's what you're using these days. Uh, the NASB, NASB translates 22.1 as tested. Um, I'm pretty sure, given my memory from way back when, um, Old King James has that God did tempt Abraham. Mm -hmm. And that translational difference has caused, causes some people problems with, with um, uh, James chapter 1, of course. Um but you're, you're absolutely right that that um, oops lost. There we are. Um, God absolutely put a, a test in front of Adam or Abraham rather to see how he would respond. And I think what's critical to get here is at the end of that, which verse is it? Verse number 12. Um, God says to him, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God. And then he goes on to say that um, because uh, that you have done this to me. Um and you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. 
and greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and sand on the seashore, uh, sand on the seashore, um, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And then verse 18, critically, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Um, these trials that you find in the Bible, where you can specifically state that God put a test in front of somebody, were never about the personal improvement of the person. So that's what we that's what we're talking about. When we think our faith is being tried by God in our world, you know, we, we get we get diagnosed with a disease or 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 we we have relationship problems or um I don't know what, what whatever else, you know, we lose a job, uh you know, whatever it is. Children misbehaving. And we say, what's that? Children misbehaving. Children misbehaving. Uh, and, and we say, okay, God's what's God trying to teach me? What's God, what's God, you know. What we mean is that God has put a trial in front of me so that by that trial, I can I can have self-improvement. I will get my faith will get stronger, my faith will get better. That that's not what's happening here in Genesis 22. This is messianic, both in terms of the the, the optics of what's happening here on Mount Moriah. Abraham is offering up his son, his only son, to please God. That's kind of, and, and in that scene, God says, or God says, or rather Abraham says, Isaac, the Lord will provide himself a ram. He kind of did right there, pretty close to Mount Moriah. He kind of, he kind of did all that. What God is doing here is qualifying Abraham to be part of that messianic promise. Now I know that you fear me. And because you have obeyed my voice and not withheld your son from me, now I will bring the seed through you. See, this is not about improving Abraham. This is about God using a person to accomplish some part of the eternal purpose of God. When we take that account and, and personalize it into our day-to-day -day routine, we may or may not make it be, be making a biblical doctrinal error but we are certainly making an expositional error in that we have taken that which is about the eternal purpose of God, about, about why the world was created and why God did what he did, and as I like to say, made it about my Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock. Those two things are not equivalent. So, uh, I mean, we probably need to talk more about it, but I, I think I'd probably be in agreement with you on that. Um, if these kind of trials are still taking place today, the only, let, me, let me say this way. The only way Abraham knows to do any of this is because God spoke to him. That's the only way. He didn't just wake up one morning and say, I think I'm going to go up to the mountain and, and sacrifice my son. Uh, that'd be Jephthah. You know, that, that's an entirely different thing. This, the only reason Abraham knows that he's on this path is because God talked to him. And that simply doesn't happen today. And I, I, would, I would add in harmony with the character of God, if you were going to be tested, it would seem to me several things would be obvious that are in this chapter. Number one, you would be told mm -hmm. it is a test. Number two, you'd be told the content of the test. Do this. Not some random event that happens in your life, but the specifics of the test. Uh, if you're taking a French class and you said, we're going to have a test tomorrow, I would assume that's in French. Uh, you don't, Abraham is told it is a test and here is the test. 
Then I would urge Abraham is told a grade, which is always helpful to know how you did at the test. The test has an end. The test doesn't simply have an end. It has a grade, pass, fail. All of that's very absent from me living my life every day. And then an event happens within my life. And then I decide it's a test with no concept of what the specifics are or when it ends. Um, you mentioned not a doctrinal issue, an expositional. I would add, it certainly is going to create a relational issue. Yes, yes, amen. If you are forced to just go through life and then hit a bump, the, how would you distinguish that rain or that storm from Matthew 7, where the rains come and the winds blow and the storm. How would you distinguish which is which? Um, the people in scripture have this great blessing to them. They have God talking. So they don't have to guess whether or not this is a general storm or this is a specific event that God wants me to engage in at his direction. They get revelation on the subject. And without that, I don't know how we decide those things. Yeah, I mean, we're eight to the top of the hour. So this is, as we thought, probably going to need to roll over into a, another session as these things, th things tend to do. But since we're on this topic, I want to bring up one last thing, even about James chapter one. Because I, how many times have you heard somebody say, consider it all joy, my brother, when you can encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith um, produces endurance, right? Mm -hmm. um, or, or patience, uh, old King James has. How many times have you heard say, be careful what you pray for? Because if you're praying for patience, guess what's going to come? God's going to bring trials into your life. God's going to bring trials. That's what's happened. Okay. I want you to, this is why it's so important. So important. And, and now, now, you're, now you're in my wheelhouse. All right. It is so important to leave a verse in its context, historical context. Because we read the book of James, like this is a book that is written intending to be a, a self-help guide because it's very proverbial, right? It, it, it's, it's the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's very proverbial in its structure. We read it as if it's a self-help guide, equally applicable to every Christian who's ever going to live from the time James writes the book until the end of time. That's not what he says. As we do all Look what time. he says. Verse 1, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Okay, I'm not part of the 12 tribes. I, I guess technically from Jerusalem I have been dispersed abroad. But James is Jewish. Okay, and he is very zealous of the law. If you read the book, read the book of Acts, assuming that's the James who wrote it, and probably is because the other James is dead. This is written to Jewish Christians who are scattered abroad. Um, when did they get scattered abroad? Persecution. Acts chapter eight. They therefore that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Church is all in Jerusalem. It's now been scattered because persecution has come on the church in the person of Saul and then others, and they're scattered abroad. Now, before that period of time, guess what? They could have, any question they had, they had all 12 apostles there, or at least, well, after the death of James, 11. But you had all the apostles in Jerusalem to answer any question you ever had about the Bible. Any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Up until this is true, 
You didn't have to ask God if you lacked wisdom. Guess who you could ask? You could ask the apostles because they were standing right there with you. These very people who received the book had access to the, to the person of the apostles. Now, I say all that to say this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you, fought, when you encounter various trials, know that the, the testing of your faith produces endurance. Were there any prophecies, any promises, any statements to the early church that indicated that a particular persecution or trial was going to come upon them? The answer to that is do this. In fact, Jesus called it the greatest tribulation the world will ever know. So we, we, you know, I bring that up because you're talking about Abraham. You know, we both talk about Abraham had the voice of God. He had the pass-fail grade from, from, okay, the original recipients of this book, they may, have had, they may not have had it specifically to them, but the, the prophecies of Jesus, the, the, even, the, even the, the, the Sermon on the Day of Pentecost talks about the great and terrible day of the Lord that's coming. It was a part of their culture, a part of their, their, their existence. They knew that's what was coming. John, Revelation chapter 1, John says, I am your brother in the great tribulation, or in the tribulation. All right? They knew this was their state. They knew it was prophesied. They knew, they knew the church had to go through it. That persecution's over. That specific prophecy's come and gone upon this generation, Matthew 24, 36. James is written to people going through it. Their persecutions, their trials are not, my children are misbehaving. Their trials are the false prophet and the beast and, 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 and the great dragon, all those things in the book of Revelation. All of that was moving against them. The fiery trial of 1 Peter chapter 4, which was coming upon all your brethren across the world, 1 Peter 5, 10, I think. Look, different era, different time. Before you take this passage and say, if I pray for patience, God's going to put a trial in my life. People, leave a verse where it belongs. This verse belongs in the first century during the greatest tribulation the world ever knew. That's a little different than what we got. All right. Anyway, that, 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 that's my soapbox. It's a good one. Well, you've already mentioned in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift. So be better to God. Too. We have a, 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 a kind, merciful, loving father. Well, man, time got away. We knew it would. Uh, feel like we made some progress, though. Uh, appreciate your help. We'll, maybe next time we'll talk uh, about the Lord's temptation and examine that. Matthew 4, uh, spend some time in Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 8, where he quotes, and uh, maybe try to get some better understanding of that as well. We need to get we need to get into verses fourteen and fifteen because I, I cut it off at thirteen because okay that, that that process in fourteen and fifteen I think needs to be there as well but absolutely sounds good um so let's go ahead and right we just got to remember to schedule that next time because the last time we did this was like three months ago and if we wait that long again <laughs> we, we, <laughs> if we wait three months again we'll go what do you want to talk about I don't know what do you want to talk about. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna look at next Friday and and see um, see who's on tap and if we have nobody okay. I'll put us in again next Friday.